This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Today on Backstory, our Backstory podcast producer Lisa Guy will be in to talk about how Australia's multicultural history has been seriously whitewashed and how that has affected her own family story. And we'll be sort of talking a little bit more about the kind of notion of, of mixed race Australians and, and how those kind of stories have really been lost to history. Hopefully we can unearth some of that and talk quite a little bit more about the fact that you can hear us on podcast. Soon though, in my opinion, one of Australia's most interesting, depthful and accomplished writers, Maria Tamarkin, will be joining me to talk about her new book, Axiomatic, which takes a look at trauma that is both artful, far-reaching and an exacting form of journalism. This kind of meditation of trauma is like interwoven with literary references, uh, with kind of fascinating stories about grandparents who, who've stolen a beloved grandchild uh, to try and save him, a Vietnamese asylum seeker's extraordinary journey, and even the legacy of the Holocaust. This is really a conversation that you're not going to want to miss. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Backstory here on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and this is the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. And one of those people is uh, the wonderful uh, Maria Tamarkin, who, in my opinion, is one of Australia's very best writers. Uh, she has been um, working tirelessly on the most extraordinary uh, book. Uh, this book is called Axiomatic. I am struggling to find words to describe it, but um, those of you who have read uh, Sarah Krasnerstein's excellent book, The Trauma Cleaner, or Mira Atkinson's Traumata, might sort of get an inkling of the sort of territory that Axiomatic is working around. Uh, Krasnerstein's book really told this incredible story um, of a of a woman who had travelled the journey of, of growing up um, as a as a young boy to transition into womanhood through the most kind of terrifyingly awful of circumstances. Uh, Mira Atkinson's Traumata takes on the kind of Me Too movement and really talks about the traumarchy, which is a term she's coined, uh, a sort of societal experience of patriarchy as a form of trauma. But Maria Tamarkin's book sort of takes these sort of seeds, I guess, and then weaves them into this extraordinary sort of, uh, I guess, compendium of of experiences and ideas around trauma that are sort of seamlessly interwoven. Uh, Maria, I really want to talk to you about Axiomatic and where it came from. Welcome to Backstory. Oh, thank you so much, Mel. And thank you so much for your kind words. So tell me, look, it, I know this, it sort of feels like uh, we're experiencing this kind of, I don't know quite how to describe it. It's as though um, two tectonic plates have been sort of rubbing together. And now, you know, I guess we're sort of getting this kind of eruption of, of feeling and ideas coming forward. You know, I would, I feel as though your book is sort of sitting atop that, but you've been working on this for a very long time. And it sort of feels like the nature of trauma that it's kind of come up through, you know, through your, your mind, filtered through your experiences and the people you've talked to. But, but give me your sort of take on where Axiomatic has come from. Well, um, 
it took um, eight and a half years. Uh, it felt impossible. Um, a lot of the time it felt cursed. I felt like I was never going to um, see it in the world. Um, so uh, it's interesting that uh, you think of it as a book about trauma. And of course, in so many ways it is, because I never thought about it in that way. And I always thought about it as a book about time. Oh, and so I, interesting. And, I, and, I, and to me, it's like the primary subject matter, really, of literature, time. Um, and, um, but, but of course, trauma kind of is everywhere. Um, when I was working on this book, um, I just felt co- constantly tripped up by time, undone by time, unable to kind of get to the point where I felt that the book was coming together, that I was doing justice to all the people who are in it, that I was really capturing what's kind of happening culturally and in the world, uh, that I could stand perhaps not proudly, but without a deep sense of shame next to next to my pages. I just couldn't get to that point where all those things kind of aligned and came together. And then it occurred to me, I mean, now I can talk about it in a sort of non-traumatised way. And obviously it was pure <laughs> bloody torture, but it just occurred to me that it is a book about time. And so, of course, um, you know, I'm constantly being tripped up by time and that's how it kind of needs to be uh, to for me to get to some kind of core of what it is and some kind of intangible core of what it is that I am on about, really. Look, it's interesting actually now that you're saying that it's about time because I was I was trying to come up with ways of describing this book and we are talking about it in kind of vague terms, but yeah. I was almost feeling like I was, you know, on this incredible river and there were all these, um, you know, we were going off into these tributaries that would like, that would kind of, you know, come out from the river and then go back to it. So coming from the same source, going to the same destination, um, but sort of having that kind of sense of flow through throughout the whole book, even though it's divided into sections and telling extremely different stories, there is this kind of sense of an unbroken narrative throughout all of them. Um, and to really get the sense of just how broad this kind of book is, that you sort of start out talking about, um, you know, subject matter that is extremely um, difficult and triggery for for many people, which is uh, the aftermath of suicides. And not just one suicide, you you sort of interweave many sort of experiences of this um, from people who actually don't have relationships with one another, Mm. but it feels as though they do the way you framed it. Um, You've also got a story in there that I find just amazing and I really want you to talk about, which is uh, about some grandparents that have stolen their grandchild to save him in their minds and uh, perhaps rightly so. Um, And you also kind of managed to wind in stories about, uh, you know, an asylum seeker who arrived from Vietnam and and their story, and also these, um, the legacy of the Holocaust and its effect on you and others, I guess, within the context of this book. Can we break down some of this? Talk to me about which kind of stories you started with and, and how and why you decided that they had a connection with one another. Well, um, I actually started with the idea for this book, um, uh, which is that I wanted to look at these axioms. You know, I call them axioms. We can call them all sorts of many different things. But they're the kinds of things that kind of exist in culture and tell us in a way that is kind of both profoundly wise and nauseatingly cliched and sort of at the same time tell us how we have come to understand the relationship between the past and the present. So that, that, that was the start. So not specific people, not specific stories, uh, but actually kind of wanting to get in there uh, and look, uh, look at those axioms. So, and we should probably tell 
people, Mel, what they are. I think it might be. Should we, or, I or perhaps, so. I think it could, or should we be more suspenseful and no, no, hard, I actually play hard it, to get? <laughs> look, I'm all for that, but I also think. Um, look, I, the, the stories in here is so fascinating. I really do want you to draw them out a little yep. bit. Okay, sure. Um, I felt like they really neatly fit into a whole, but they are individually just fascinating stories. Um, yes. So, um, so just very quickly, uh, I started with those ac- axioms. Uh, the first one is time heals all wounds, and that's the chapter that looks at the aftermath of suicide. Uh, the second, what's the second one, Mel? Do you uh, remember? The second one is actually <laughs> those who forget the past uh, are right. to re- And that's that uh, grandparents. Yes, yes, that's right. That's the grandparents one about which I'll talk in a second. And then history repeats itself. Uh, and then it's give me a child before the age of seven and I'll give you a woman. And finally, you cannot enter the same river twice. And I found this axiom axioms incredibly fascinating because they're so slippery and they're like kind of furniture in our culture and they're kind of they're omnipresent and they're invisible and I wanted to get into them but not sort of as a critic to defend them or to sort of dismantle them but to kind of bump human life and human experiences um, against those axioms. Uh, You talk about how dissimilar you know, experiences that I talk about are in the book. And that was very important to me. I didn't want, I think in a lot of nonfiction, there is a lot of kind of smoothing the wrinkles out and connecting things uh, together. So I actually wanted to um, I wanted each chapter to feel very different and to kind of be at a strange and odd and angular relationship to the rest of the book and yet also kind of cohering and speaking, you know, for all sort of chapters to talk to each other. And I wanted people who were strangers to each other to inhabit those chapters. And this is very, very ordinary when we talk about novels, when we talk about fiction, that you bring a whole lot of people who don't know each other and they start kind of meeting each other and, uh, you know, um, bumping into each other on the pages of a book. doesn't happen so much in Australian nonfiction, and I'm not going to deliver a rant about Australian nonfiction. You can you can call me in at some other Maria, time and I I'll do that. I would actually probably pay to hear that rant. <laughs> it's going to be a long and impassioned rant, but I'll, 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 I am going to be restrained uh, because I, I know you want to, to talk about kind of specific things that are uh, happening in the book. But I just, I wanted this book to feel wild. You know, in Australian nonfiction, that's, that's just the first sentence of my rant and then um, then that restraint, the legendary restraint that I talk about will kick in. But, you know, it's just, it's so tame. It's so safe. And I just wanted th- that kind of wildness to really be there in the book and to be there at the level of each sentence and then to be there, like, what is it? And I kind of, you know, when people don't quite know how to talk about this book, I like that too. They describe it as a book of personal essays. It is not a book of personal essays, but I don't mind all the ways in which this book is mischaracterized. I like it, how it's spiky and angular and it's not quite clear how to talk about it. And that's that felt really, really important to me. Do you want me to talk about the grandparents? Oh, Absolutely. Look, I love that you've taken this tack, Maria, but um, but just in case you've joined us and you're not quite sure what we're talking about, um, 
the voices that you are hearing is me, Mel Cranenberg, uh, and Maria Tamarkin, the author of Axiomatic, which is that extraordinary book that's just been described. Unlike anything else that has been published um, that I've read to date in Australian literature, um, you know, as you've just described, Maria, really taking the kind of craft of a novelist and putting it uh, towards this sort of non-fiction landscape. But more than that, you know, something you've mentioned about, um, you know, Australian uh you know, Australian writing. And I do want to pick up on the specific story that you wanted to talk about, but I want to touch on something that you've just said. You've been described to me by many people as being someone of European sensibility in the Australian writing landscape. And I, I really want to pick up on that because what do you think that means? What do you think people are trying to drive at when they say that about you as a writer? Because my take on it has always been, you're not afraid to go there. You're not scared of emotionality. You're not scared of, of really digging under the surface of things. And I, I do you feel like maybe Australian writing has been slightly infected by that sort of Anglo-Saxon re- reserve? Is that your take on it as well, Maria? Well, I wonder, um, I don't know how to take when people talk about European sensibility. I understand that it's meant as a compliment. I wonder why it should be a compliment. I think it's it sort of says that you are not, you're un-Australian, but that's okay. You know, we, we we can we can handle, or we sort of partially welcome that. Uh, but I, I I think it's a kind of it's an indication of how hard it is to, or it's an indication that sort of in Australian nonfiction. Uh, how how perhaps limited it has been. And I'm really glad you've mentioned Sarah Kresnerstein's book, which is a fantastic book. Um, she's American, you know, she's, she has brought her American sensibility into the field of Australian nonfiction. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of, I'm thinking I don't want to be described as someone with a European sensibility. Mm-hmm. Maybe when I was 25, that felt like something good. It doesn't feel, and I thank profusely all the people who have said this to me or, you know, to other people about me, but I think I actually want to uh, be thought of as an Australian writer. And I think as, you know, as Australian writer of nonfiction, not someone who's kind of extraneous, but in a way that we have come to be okay with, but someone who sits in some kind of direct relationship to, you know, Australian writing, because Australian writing, I had a conversation with my son yesterday um, on the way to school and I said, are you going to stay up and watch Socceroos? And he said, um, I'm not even Australian, mom, uh, because, you know, I, I'm Russian Jewish and his father is Hispanic American. And I said, no, you are Australian. You're born in this country. Australia, Australian is not an ethnicity. It's not Anglo anymore. That's gone. That's dead. So why should a person who has whatever sort of traditions that are there some, somewhere in my DNA also kind of um, very sort of infused with all kinds of Australian traditions and Anglo traditions and it's all a kind of a dog's breakfast really inside of me. Why should I be kind of positioned outside of Australian body of literature, I, I, that's not a compliment anymore. Stop it, okay? I love <laughs> not you, that. Mel. No. Not you, Mel. You oh, would never I, say that. I am loving this uh, conversation and it's going to feed very neatly into my second guest where we're talking about these, you know, the liminal Australian identity that's been sort of hidden all these years. Um, but look, uh, as much as I would love this conversation to be the centrepiece of what we're discussing, um, the, your book Axiomatic really does deserve to be discussed in greater depth specifically. Um, we were going to discuss one of the 
stories in this book, which I find incredibly moving. Um, and that is the one that relates to the the second axiom that we discussed, which is those who forget the past are condemned to re, and then there's a long uh, N dash, M dash, I should say, yeah. um, after that. Um, and it's the story of grandparents who, in inverted commas, stole their grandson because they wanted to save him from a fate like his parents. Um, It's a really moving and complicated story. You've obviously gone into great depth in researching this, into looking into court transcripts. I don't doubt there were many interviews here as well. Uh, Talk to me about this story and the axiom that that surrounds it. Uh, Well, um one thing I know is that when I've tried to talk uh, in quite some depth about this story, um, it just gets completely out of control. It's so difficult to kind of to talk about quickly. So I am going to sort of just try to pull out a, a couple of threads um, rather than sort of venture deeply into kind of reconstructing this story and taking um, your listeners so, through it. Um, I think otherwise we are all going to get completely lost. I, I've done this before, so I know that. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to say one, and I know I'm like kind of resisting going into the specifics of what I'm talking about, partially because I um, I don't think about what's happening in um, this book as stories. It's not a book of stories. Um, and I've, I've written about it. I have a thing about the kind of fetishization of narrative and stories and the way that we think about nonfiction as kind of, you know, uh, making space for certain kinds of stories, um, that are important stories or uh, previously untold stories. So I would never, ever... Um, even, even though this particular chapter you want to talk about is kind of has a much stronger and clearer narrative at the heart of it, I do want to kind of offer a little bit of resistance to kind of an easy way of talking about books and easy and particular books of nonfiction and this kind of the dominance of this idea of a story or that that's the way well, we the talk idea about human that life. A moral lesson or that actually mm. life works like that. I think that's you yeah. know in a sense you kind of deconstructing axioms which are doing that very thing which is kind of codifying life. Absolutely. Um, I guess yeah. you're you're unpacking that, you're unpicking yeah. it, you're deconstructing it. But I think this story is worthy you yeah. know in that it is a story yeah. and that yeah. it has been now constructed yeah. um, is is kind of something that does show you the spiky nature and the mm. unreconcilable nature of some, of some people's lives. Yeah. Um, so uh, at, the, at the heart of uh, this particular chapter is a uh, a woman, a grandmother, I do not name her for uh, because I need to protect her and her family and this is the promise that I have made, which has led me to kind of think about, well, how do I write uh, this particular chapter without any names and without any identifying details and that's the kind of the question of ethics and all the rest of it. Uh, but she uh, was born in uh, Warsaw in 1943. Uh, she was Jewish. Uh, it was an absolute miracle that she survived with her mother, uh, during the period of the Holocaust. Um, she, um, you know, so she was a baby. She spent the first year in a pit uh, that was dug up for storing potatoes in winter. Uh, and she was protected by a, or she and her mother, they were protected by a Catholic woman. Um, who, there was a wonderful yeah. line I have to just pause to, to mention. I think you said something like she was born in Poland in, 90, in 1943 when I think, you know, 
nothing Jewish, nothing was, Jewish born. was born. That's right. It's just amazing. But anyway. Everything Jewish was being destroyed or yeah. has already been destroyed. Little and lines like that where mm. you're just crisis but please go on yeah thank you um so she's a child holocaust survivor uh she identifies very clearly uh with her mother with her mother's experiences uh with this uh, idea of being a survivor but she is very much a survivor and so is her mother who's an absolute hero to her um she ended up i'm going to skip all sorts of incredibly complex and intricate kind of biographical entanglements uh she ended up in australia with her husband and her only son uh her only son had a tumultuous relationship uh, with a woman, with an Australian woman. Out of this relationship, two children were produced. Uh, one lived uh, with the woman uh, in her sort of evolving and complicated sort of uh, family life. And the other lived uh, with the uh, grandparents uh, and with the son uh, for uh, 10, 10 years. Uh, then the son, the only son of this woman, who, as I'm sure you can understand, meant the world to her, died in a motorcycle accident. Uh, the mother appeared, sued for custody. One, again, I'm omitting a whole ocean of details and complications there. Um, and uh, the mother u- reunited with a former boyfriend who was a very violent man who spent a lot of time at Pentridge Prison uh, in um, as a, um, you know, for armed rom- robbery and all sorts of other kind of violent acts. Uh, he came back into that sort of family space and started um, uh, being really violent towards particularly the uh, young boy in question who was 11, 12 um, at the time. Uh, the grandmother who was absolutely uh, destroyed by what was happening uh, tried to uh, protect the her grandson wrote uh, multiple letters to the Department, Department of Human Services, sought any form of redress in order to uh, offer to, uh, in fact, adopt the son, uh, the grandson. Um, and uh, everything everything was denied. There are kind of reasons for that, uh, but but nonetheless. So she ended up in a situation where uh, her grandson was in an incredibly unsafe. Uh, uh, household with a perpetrator and with his mother, uh, who was, you know, also a victim uh, of this uh, of this man. So unable to protect, uh, unable to protect herself, unable to protect, uh, you know, her sons. But I think that that boy was a particular target for the violent acts of her kind of uh, of her boyfriend. Uh, the boy walked out of his primary school. He was in the final year of his primary school, made a phone call uh, f- to his grandparents and said, I am not going back to my mother's house. Um, and the grandmother said, come here, we will hide you. Now, they ended up, uh, they had a kind of a crazy house uh, that had all sorts of uh, interesting areas, rooms and so forth. And there was a room where the door was not obvious. It looked like uh, sort of like a rock. And um, the, you know, of course, there was uh, a police search for the for the boy. Uh, the school uh, reported to the police. The the mother uh, was actively searching for him, and the grandmother, who prior to that was, as she told me, the most law abiding uh, person in the world, took law in her own hands. And um, twelve times, a police came uh, into her house, and twelve times they actually could not discover the boy because he was hidden really well. Uh, finally, 
again, not in her house, but elsewhere, they were apprehended. And the boy was triumphantly returned to his fantastic family with his mother and the abuser. Uh, and the grandmother was put in jail. And this is the incredible thing about this story that you've just told, which is a, a very complicated story with, you know, a lot of nuance. And I think most people naturally would feel that the grandparents acted in not only in good faith, but cared about the boy. And, and as you know, as you kind of relate, that is certainly the uh, the impression the judge had. But then due to the laws being what they were um, and custody having been given to the mother, he was left with no choice but to jail the grandmother despite these complications. But what I find the most amazing about this, and I'm afraid this may be the note that we have to leave on, is that, you know, this story itself became a kind of axiom, if you like, a sort of or a, a re- reduced or a reductive kind of um, tale, a Twitter tale about grandparents kidnapping and locking a grandson in a dungeon. Um, it sort of really does show you the the oversimplification that's happened with um, the way in which we we kind of report news and stories, the the way they're contracted, the way we lose that depth. And I'm so grateful, uh, Maria Tamarkin, for a book like yours that really unpicks that and, and exposes great depths. Um, I do want to mention that there's very, very much else in this book, um, including your own sort of uh, story and experiences woven woven in here um there is uh, quite a lot of stuff um that may may be quite um evocative or provocative for those who've experienced great loss or trauma um but i very much recommend this as a book that everyone should read uh, a wonderful australian book marita Mark. thank you so much mel um i would love to have you on again to talk about these issues um but i'm afraid that's all we've got for now thank you so much for joining Absolute us on Backstory. pleasure You've been listening to Backstory on 3RRR. We've got a lot more coming up for you. Uh, Lisa Guy, the podcast producer for this program, is going to come in and continue some of the conversation about what it is to be Australian, particularly Australia's whitewashed history and how the kind of mixed race people within that have somehow been lost. Uh, We're going to try and dig up some of that history. 3 Triple R. You are indeed on 3 Triple R. The show is Backstory, uh, all about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. One of the people behind the backstory is uh, the wonderful Lisa Guy. Uh, She's producing the Backstory podcast. Yes, we have a podcast each week. The show that we put live to air is now being edited and uh, is something that you can subscribe to on your favourite podcast catcher. Uh, And the person making all of that happen is uh, Lisa Guy. Lisa, welcome. Hi, uh, Mel. Lovely to be here. It's so nice to have you in the studio with me uh, because every week uh, that we've now been working together, uh, we've been sort of you know, supposedly talking about editing the show and putting together stuff for the podcast. But actually what we've ended up discussing is something very different, which is, you know, our shared kind of mixed race backgrounds and identities and very specifically the sort of stories that seem to get lost in in this kind of wash of, uh, you know, dominant sort of cultural paradigms that seems to be, you know, the kind of current way of thinking about race in Australia. Um, and, you know, I, 
I particularly was interested by your own family history, Lisa, and I really wanted to share some of that with our listeners um, as a way of introducing you uh, and, you know, one of the wonderful people, obviously, behind the scenes at Triple R that, that we don't often get to, to meet. But, but Lisa, tell me a bit about your family history. Okay, so I think what got us started was um, we were talking about cultural backgrounds and how it's often not easy to tell you know, where someone's from or what, you know, what their background is. And I guess in my case, um, you know, radio doesn't help here, but I'm very blonde and blue-eyed and quite, you know, Celtic looking. But in actual fact, um, I found out through my father uh, in the late 90s that my grandfather was in fact half Chinese. And this came as quite a surprise, um, and we found out because my grandfather had had a child out of wedlock. He was quite an interesting character, actually. He'd had a child out of wedlock and she had not really been uh, close to the family. And she came back into our lives in the 90s um, and told us all of this history about my grandfather. His father was a uh, from southern China. He came to Australia in the 1850s. And his name was Wong Ah Guy. So my name actually should be Lisa Wong, but because of the white Australia policy, it's it's not. Um, Wong Ah Guy married a white English woman here in Australia and then moved to New Zealand where they had something like an incredible number of 17 children, which is terrifying in itself. And... My my grandfather and four of his brothers decided that they wanted to come back to Melbourne where they'd, they'd originally been born. And to do that, um, they had to anglicise their name and they had to pass for being white because the White Australia policy had been enacted in 1901. And he then, he then uh, lived in the Little Lonsdale district in Melbourne, which was a kind of a, a slum area, according to government officials, but in fact was a really incredibly diverse, multicultural uh, part of Melbourne in the early part of the 20th century. And he uh, met my grandmother and had my had my father, and uh, unfortunately he died in the forties. He was quite young when he died. He was probably in his early sixties. So, yeah, it was quite a surprise to find that out. And I think that the interesting thing for me was that I I. I used to look at this story as a kind of like, oh, wow, that's so interesting. And why would he have kept it hidden? I suppose it was the law. But I think it was worse than that. I think it was much, much more shameful. Um, my grandmother certainly, I think, didn't know. And she made up a lot of stuff on his death, death certificate because she didn't know that much about his background. And I think he kept it secret because of the shame. This is such an interesting um, area and it's something that I think, you know, and I hope to hear more of now. Um, I actually got really interested in, you know, in Melbourne's history and particularly Little Lon and some of what you're talking about, I'm, I, you know, discovered through research and, um, you know, sort of thought about what would have happened if in 1901 the first in enactment of Parliament hadn't been the restricted immigration policy or white Australia policy, um, you know, if instead, you know, some of those 
amazing images that we saw from uh, from 1901 where Chinese Australian citizens, as they were calling themselves rightly so, uh, were, you know, celebrating under the newly erected um, and now iconic China, Chinatown arches. Um, had that been allowed to thrive, how very different would we have looked? Instead, we're now in this strange space where where those who have mixed race identities um, hit them. And and this is something I really particularly want to talk about because I know you've been doing a little bit of digging into this and into this, you know, particularly seemingly shameful notion in the context of a white Australia of being not just other but mixed, in fact, and how that had its own, you know, extreme and special kind of, um, you know, place in this history. Can you talk about some of what you found, Lisa? Well, it's yeah, as I said, I was shocked. I was shocked that it was more shame than than just you know um, trying to get around some kind of government policy and then i I started reading Henry Reynolds' book called Nowhere People and Henry Reynolds is a really interesting character he was um, he was brought up in Tasmania and then moved as a young um, historian to Townsville where he really saw the full brunt of racism against um, Indigenous Australians. And he built most of his career around trying to get people to recognise that the frontier wars were wars and that they should be recognised as such. Um, He uncovered a lot of material about that. And in the process, his mother and his sister approached him and showed him a photograph of his um, his grandmother who he says in Nowhere People uh, was someone who was not spoken about in their family at all. And it turns out that she was apparently half Aboriginal or he believed she was half Aboriginal. And the fact that it wasn't spoken about intrigued him as well in the sense that, um, you know, this was a time when people were reclaiming their identity and here he was trying to uncover something about his family's history that was deemed even more shameful than being from another race. It was being half-caste. And so in his book he describes... I'm just going to read you a little bit. He describes... He says, in 1928... 1928, the Brisbane Mail called half-castes a pathetic, sinister third race. Gilbert White, the ironically named uh, distinguished Anglican Bishop of Carpentaria, believed that if they were not taken in hand, they were likely to become one of the most dangerous elements in the whole community. Um, Another woman, Daisy Bates, who wrote a book called The Native Tribes of Western Australia, said she abominated the idea of sexual relations between Europeans and Aborigines, and the resultant progeny were despised. As to the half-caste, she wrote, however early they may be taken and trained, with very few exceptions, the only good half-caste is a dead one. I mean, this is extraordinary language. It's really atrocious, isn't it? And it's one of those things where I suppose, you know, this, um, you know, the kind of not so tacit but explicit segregation meant that um, that any intermixing of races was considered particularly abhorrent. And the stories are interesting. My uh, family background on my father's side is Anglo-Indian. That's an adopted term that essentially uh, Eurasian people use, people who have mixed uh, Indian and European origin. And there's 400 years of that history in India, um, you know, and a mixed race kind of community to prove it. Um, but there was a real sense of, you know, they were kind of considered, you know, to be people who were 
I don't know, criminals or sex workers or anything that, you know, it was, they were disparaged in a way, not that I'm saying that, you know, that sex work should be disparaged, but they were used in disparaging terms, um, you know, like to suggest that there was some kind of moral degeneracy associated with being of mixed race origin, um, particularly that. So this notion that we, we don't ever hear about these days, miscegenation, this kind of mixing of the races was really considered to be some kind of an atrocity and it was it's just appalling to think about now Um, and and part of it too is this idea of transgression that somehow because the irony the irony with the chinese um uh english relation i guess in in australia is that uh it was considered far more shameful for someone from for a man from china to marry a white woman in china than it was the other way around in Melbourne because, you know, I mean, it, when you're looking at colonial Australia, there was a shortage of women. Um, it wasn't like there were women everywhere. So, of course, there were people were looking at people as people, not they weren't considering them as their race. And, and also, if you look at the history of colonialism, race is actually an invented category that comes straight out of colonialism. You know, people don't naturally think in terms of race. They have to be taught to think that way and you know so I think there was a lot a lot of people that um, were transgressing not out of any kind of sense of being radical but because um, they really didn't consider it a problem and yet there was still an undercurrent particularly coming from you know colonial powers of no we must maintain some kind of ridiculous idea of purity as if there ever is anything like purity when it comes to notions of race. I mean, it's quite quite a strange concept. If you've uh, just joined us on 3RRR, you're listening to the show called Backstory. It's about books writing uh, and all things, I suppose, that we discuss do have some sense of a, of a literary sort of backdrop. Um, you've managed to pull in a few books there, um, Lisa. Lisa Guy is uh, our guest today. She is the producer of the Backstory podcast. What are the books that you've just referenced there? Because if anyone does want to follow up on some of these ideas, um, these forgotten histories, the sort of nuance behind, um, behind our very whitewashed history, what books can people kind of chase up to find out more? I think one of the ones that I've read recently, it's been out for a couple of years, is Tom Griffith's book called The Art of Time Travel. And what I love about that book is that he does an incredible job of, he basically looks at both fiction writers and, pardon me, historians. So fiction writers that have told historical stories and historians. And um, short of reading those people you, you know, yourself, he does an incredible job of outlining their approach to writing and the way in which they try to tell very complex, um, difficult stories about Australia's past. And and then that that's led me to read a whole lot of other people as well. But um, the other person is Henry Reynolds' Nowhere People. Um, I've only just started reading that and it's an incredible book as well. Um, But to start with Griffiths, I think, and then use him as a way to find yourself, you know, find your way to other writers that he discusses is a really good, good starting point, I would say. What I I really love about uh, the conversation that we've been having, Lisa, is that, you know, in not kind of oversimplifying our history, we find this richness and a a multiculturalism within our own culture. You know, even those who may have an appearance that is deemed to be more Anglo-Saxon or um, 
or if if you like, our passing. You know, there is a level of privilege associated with that, but digging into our past kind of gives us, um, you know, a real sense of, of where we sit in a much more complicated and wonderful history. Yeah, and when I, look, when I started doing research on my family's history, I think part of it was spurred on by, this was in the late 90s and, and Howard had come into power and the change in discourse in Australia was quite, I mean, we went from Keating's Redfern speech to let's make Anzac Day a national, you know, whatever it is now. It's a horrific thing that it is. And it became so jingoistic and nationalistic. And I just kept thinking, I want to put myself in front of John Howard and go, look at me, look at, look at me and how I look. And you see, you know, your Aussie girl. But in reality, no, that's not who I am. That's, the past is much more complex. And, and if we open ourselves up to that, that history, then we start to see that, you know, as much as politicians want to whitewash everything, um, these things will come out again and again. And I think that's the beauty of, uh, of you know, books and writing is that we're able to explore those things. Absolutely. Um, and Lisa, before we leave this discussion, I should say if, if people are enjoying uh, what they're hearing on this show, uh, it does uh, come out as well on a podcast. If you're at work and you're sort of sneakily streaming or listening on the airwaves, uh, but you want to kind of save things and listen to us later, um, you can certainly stream uh, the show as it was played live to air later on. Um, there is that uh, availability online. But Lisa's also hard at work repackaging things for podcast. How do people get a hold of that? Well, at the moment, it's, I've just been looking into that because it's relatively easy for us to find. But because the Triple R website's undergoing a revamp, uh, there's not a lot of action on the actual show's webpage. So to get to all of the podcasts for Triple R, Perhaps the easiest way, and this is, I'm going to give you an address that's not as simple as I would like it to be, but HTTPS, um, all the other bits, triple RFM dot Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com, will take you to Triple R's um, page on Liberated Syndication, which is the where the podcasts are hosted, and you can subscribe to them from there. You should also be able to subscribe on uh, whatever podcatcher that you choose to use. We'll make sure that those things are available as well. And in the coming uh, weeks and months, we will be making sure that we're going to be um, up on socials um, and talking to you a lot more. I hope that um, we'll be able to hear more from Lisa and her amazing story as well. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me on the air on Backstory. Absolute pleasure, Mel. That's really nearly all we have time for. It's been just an extraordinary show. I, I really want to thank uh, my incredible guests on Backstory today, uh, Maria Tamarkin, uh, talking about her amazing book, Axiomatic, uh, which, you know, we really did not get it to go into in as great a depth as I would have liked, uh, but it's really worth, really, really worth looking into. Um, I do want to mention we did uh, talk about that uh, some of the, the book does touch on issues that may be triggery for some people, traumatic for some people. I want to mention the Lifeline Australia number 131114. For those who are struggling or who know someone who is, uh, that is available 24-7, uh, crisis support and uh, suicide prevention. So please avail yourself of that if you need help or know anyone who does. I will be back with you next week. And as you just heard as well, uh, we are available on podcast. So you can certainly uh, subscribe to us and we'll be talking more about that as time goes on. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.